Marvelites, you are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale May 31st, 2023. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Jasmine Estrada. The M stands for matinee. Hmm. Love a good matinee, whether it was one of the old CBGB Sunday matinees I went to or a matinee screening of a movie. Always delightful. Uh, but we are not here to talk about ticket prices. No, this is the official Marvel podcast for Marvel Comics, where we give you some details and reasons to check out every new Marvel comic each week. We'll tell you our three personal picks of the week. Kind of, I have five, but hey, we'll get into that. We'll also tell you a bit about every other issue coming out this week. We'll pick a favorite non-spoiler reason for you to check out that issue and give an award named after a quote pulled from one of this week's comics. Uh, it'll be super fun. We'll get into all that in a bit. Plus, we'll run through the new Infinity Comics, hitting Marvel Unlimited, some highlights from issues new to MU, picks for collections, and so much more, including a reading club. Yes, we're a day early, but I don't care because I'm going to take every opportunity to just enjoy this month. Enjoy June. It is Pride Month. We're going to be talking to writer and artist Stephen Byrne, who contributed to this year's Marvel's Voices Pride issue number one, which comes out later this month. Get excited for that. And we're going to be talking about Ultimate Spider-Man Confessions, which is issue number 13 of that original 2001 run. And... I don't know. It's, it's it's one of those things where you revisit something as an adult and you're like, oh, now I know why this clicked at that time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's wonderful. Heck yeah. Uh, yes, it rules so much, but that's a little bit later in the show. For now, we are going to get into our picks, starting with Amazing Spider-Man number 26. It's a really great, really great issue written by Zeb Wells, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Marcio Meniz and Eric Arciniega, and lettered by BC's Joe Caramagna. But before you even get into the book, there are a friggin' metric ton of variant covers for this book. It is a monumental book. If you don't know what's going on in this issue... I don't want to, I, I will try my best not to, to say too much, but like this got spoiled and then it like spun out and we, we, sh we shared the information with the world of what is happening in this issue. A major Marvel character makes a huge sacrifice, has a huge heroic moment, and it's one that is, you know, part of the story and you're, you're following along and, and you go like this way and that way. And so if you know about it, you can go into it and still feel something that there was a moment where I would like, I knew everything and I'd known about this for a long time and I got to, it and I was like, Oh no, I thought X happened. And then I turned the page. I was like, Oh, you got me. Uh, this is the culmination of the big battle between Spider-Man and, uh, an enemy who has returned from several years using weird, cool glyph sort of, magic science bananas time travel dimensional weirdness things uh it it it's wild we've crossed dimensions we've seen wild things happen with mary jane she's come back to our reality with children and, and a partner and all kinds of stuff and like this issue is revelations it's answers it's huge stakes it's big battles it's scary stuff there's a transformation for uh, Rabin, who it just looks gnarly. And it, the best way I could put it is it looks wrong in the best way. You see what he looks like. And it's it's one of those things where you have like cognitive dissonance of looking at this thing and your brain is like, this is upsetting to me because it's not a way something should look, which is, I think, really helpful when you're trying to make a terrifying, scary, gnarly creature, a villain, a thing that is about to destroy the world. So it's really good. Major things, again, I said revelations, but there's some major revelations for characters who have been established in this arc and things that happen. There's something that happens to two characters that I'm still like distraught about. And the, the big thing that has been at the heart of what everybody's talking about is incredibly important, but there's so much more to this issue, so much more emotionally, um, artistically, like the issue taking place in the rain is such a, a visual component to it. It really sets the scene so well there's a friggin' giant dragon that shoots flaming magic symbols that can change you on a quantum level which is weird and wild and the way that the fantastic four come in and help to deal with that problem is trippy and fun I, between what zeb writes 
Zeb and John Romita do here and what Ryan North and his collaborators on Fantastic Four do or have been doing with Reed Richards and his body, I'm all for it. it. Yeah. I hate it, it. It's it's great. It's really great. Every single time. I'm like, why? Yep. This is gross. Make it weird. He's a weird dude. Uh this is this is a big culmination on a number of levels. It is a, a heartbreaker. It is a hell of an issue. Hopefully you all check it out. Give it the chance it deserves outside of just being, oh my gosh, this is the big thing that happens right now. It's it's a lot. It's really good. Next up is my first pick of the week, Edge of Spider-Verse, issue number two. And I mean, it's no surprise why I picked this issue. The main story, I mean, like I feel like we got a full issue of Spintress in this book, uh, but the main story is called Home is where your heart is cut out by a huntsman. And it is written by David Hine with art by Luciano Vecchio and colors by Brian Reber with letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. And it is like a solid 20 pages of Spintress. I was shocked at how much we got here. I mean, with these Spider-Verse issues, we get... It's an anthology series, right? We get a bunch of different stories in each issue. Some issues have more than others. This one has two. But we've seen some that have like four. But... It's always a, a treat when we get to go into these little pockets of the Spider-Verse and get to spend a little bit more time to see how these characters will live in their world. And in this particular issue, we get Spintress as she goes back to her home universe and she's dealing with the repercussions of, you know, her fairy godmother and how that affects her relationship with her mother, who is now like very Odin sleepish. But she is also facing off against the Huntsman, who is obviously like a craven. Uh, type character, but he flies on a vulture that is green and named Adrian, but it's spelled A-D-R-E-N-N-E, and it's even made fun of in the story. But the way that the story is being told here and presented, not only are we getting a lot of singing, but like it it feels like a fully fleshed out world. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I finished this issue hungry for more of Spintress and more from this world because it feels fully realized. We get to see like, you know, more of these characters really playing up these like fantastical Disney-esque type characters and archetypes. Um, and it's it's just like a fun way of expanding this universe and telling these types of stories, telling Spider-Man stories in particular. But the thing that really blew me away in this issue was the the art like Luciano Vecchio is firing on all cylinders like he is cooking in this issue it's not even funny every page has a, a, a crazy dynamic pose with Spintress and he makes her look so like one just badass but two just gorgeous because at the end of the day she's still dressed up like a princess but like the way he balances these these like aesthetics with the action is is just gorgeous like I can't get enough of this and I haven't even talked about Benjamin Percy's story at the end of this book we get a short story at the end as well by Benjamin Percy with art by Marika Cresta and colors by Ruth Redman again lettered by BC's Joe Caramagna and this couldn't have been a better pairing of two different spider stories like yes that's a little bit shorter but it does have some of that same element of like fantasy and fairy tale but a much darker tone and I'm obsessed with these Edge of Spider-Verse stories. I think this has just been like a feast of storytelling, a feast of Spider-Man and fandom and love, but also like I like have never been more intrigued in all these other alternate realities. And I got to give my kudos to Caden McGahee and Nick Lowe because they are pulling in talent left and right and just knocking these issues out of the park. Real good. Third pick of the week is Punisher number 12, which is the end of this run. This is the King of Killers finale, epilogue, whatever you want to call it. It is Punisher no more. That's the the story title, mind you. Uh, It is written by Jason Aaron, art by Jesus Saiz, Paul Azaceta, with colors by Matt Hollingsworth, lettered by VCs Corey Pettit. This is so much. Oh, my God. Goodness. We've been talking about the series and, and sort of the the extra issues that we've gotten and, and really seeing Frank Castle as the fist of the beast working for the hand and just being this god of killers, as it were. And it uh, it's been gnarly. And so the last issue, I don't want to spoil too much if you've not been catching up, but things came to a head with Frank and his previously dead wife, Maria, what happened to her, what she did, what she's gone through. And it left Frank in a puddle 
in a number of ways. Uh, and th- this issue is called the epilogue. And I think that is appropriate for a number of reasons because so much has happened leading up to this where Frank's not really like firing his guns at this point. He's not slicing people in half. That ship has sailed. He is now having words with the uh, archpriestess of the hand who is nasty and scary as hell in this one. Kudos to Jesus Saiz for really like just going full horror with her and making it really cool and palpable and, and gross. And we get that conversation. We then get conversations between Frank and a bunch of superheroes, people he's close with people he's had history with and they're, like reactions to what do we do with someone who has basically become the biggest mass murderer in history, but is also kind of someone we've, we've been side by side with who's probably saved our lives at times. There, there are layers to this. And even Jason in his letter says the Frank Castle is a very simple character. Frank Castle is also an extremely complicated character. Like there are many layers to this in a number of ways. And you feel that as a reader, you feel that for the characters around him. You even feel it for Frank because he goes through something here with Maria and just, you you almost feel the strings cut from him and just, It is wild. I don't want to get too much into specifics because there'll be a lot of people talking this way and that way about it. Shout outs again, Jason, incredible storyline. He's been wanting to tell us for a long time. Jesus is doing the, the present day stuff. It is beautiful and horrifying and heartbreaking. And Paul, as a Seta doing all the flashback work, especially in this one, seeing some really crucial moments of Frank's past and what those formative bits did for him. But, uh, Yeah, this is an issue of endings, but also beginnings in a couple of ways. That's it for our picks of the week, but we need to talk about the rest of our fabulous fresh floppies. But before we do that, we have to talk about awards. Last week, we were giving out the At Least I'm a Cute Nepo Baby Award, um, and it was in Fury issue number one. Yeah. Um, the winner is Max Lorem at my own underscore voice on Twitter who found it said great book, great podcast. Thank you, Max. Yeah. Um, but we need to talk about this week's award name cause we're going to be giving that out to all of the new books this week. Ryan, are you ready? I am ready. All right. This week we're going to be giving out the, this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Just a wonderful quote. With that in mind, if you find the quote for this week, screen cap it and tweet it to at Agent Evan at Jasmiest with hashtag Marvel's pull list or email us at pull at Marvel.com. If you're the first, I'll reach out to you, get your recent digital comic of your choice. And please, of course, mark your messages as OK to read pull list so we can read them here on the show. And if you have a local comic shop, please also give us their name and location so we can give them a shout out as well. And if you're not the first, we still have another chance for you to win. Uh, we've teamed up with Marvel Insider to score some Marvel Insider points just by listening to the podcast. After you listen, make sure to head over to marvel.com insider and look for the Marvel's pull list quote of the week activity. You'll be asked to identify the quote of the week uh, amongst a selection of four different quotes. Choose correctly and you'll earn 500 Marvel Insider points. So, Heck yes. All right. So again, that quote is... This is like being attacked by an angry preschool, and we're going to give that award out right now to the rest of our books, including a book I was like super close. It was just a tough week. I really wanted to give pick of the week to Alien number two. It is so good. This is a great issue. I want to give my This is Like Being Attacked by an Angry Preschool award to Declan Chalvey, the writer here who reminds us how great of an artist he is by showing how solid of a writer he is understanding scenes and shots. And I can only imagine how his script describes these things for the artist. He has such a incredible masterful grasp of storytelling and working with uh, artist Andrea Brocardo. It is really a terrific issue. Scared the crap out of me a couple of times. It was really good. Next up is Avengers beyond issue number three. I'm going to go ahead and give my, This is like being attacked by an angry preschool award to the fact that like the Avengers, when the smartest Avengers are 
trapped in a teleporter have to make a call. They have, to, they have to call someone who's smart enough to figure this out. And the call that they make made my heart feel very warm. I was very happy to see this character enter uh, the Avengers threshold. Up next is Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain number four, which is probably my favorite issue of the series. I think yours as well, Jazz. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a packed issue. Morgan and, and Doom and spy stuff and great family bits. I think I would go maybe my favorite moment. My this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award bit goes to the scene with Betsy and Tony. There's so much in here. Betsy and Rachel so good too. everything. Betsy, all Betsy gets everything. Betsy being on the red carpet. She's coming out. She's talking to people. She's hanging out with Tony. She's bossing him around. She's just a superstar in this one. She really is. All right. Next up is Captain America symbol of truth. Issue number 13. This one's a, a beast of an issue. It is cap mm-hmm. first cap. And I'm sorry, I'm on Sam Wilson's side here. So I'm going to go ahead and give him my, this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award. Over to Carnage number 13, which continues Carnage Reigns, the crossover between Carnage and Miles and Red Goblin. I'm going to give my, this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award to Cletus in a giant Stark Sentinel. And then where he goes from there. It is a dangerous, nasty thing to put one of the worst character, like the most evil characters in Marvel with this much power. Also, I just want to read this out loud because this made my like, it gave me chills when I read it. Okay. It's a description of like the carnage symbiote taking over someone. A hideous maggoty mind tastes my thoughts, tonguing the meaty delicacies. Like, ew, it's so gross. I hate it. I hate all of it. All right. You know what I don't hate? Hmm. The next book, Clobbering Time, issue number three, it's a Doctor Strange and Thing team up. And I love seeing me some ever-loving Thing bootay in this issue. And that's what's going to get my, this is like being attacked by an angry preschool because a lot of questions were answered for me here. And Thing, he's been doing a lot of squats. You can tell. <laughs> Come to Clobbering Time number three for some Ben Grimm took us. Ugh. So good. Speaking of great issues, Deadpool number seven. Would we have picked it? You better believe it. Absolutely. Oh my God. It's so good. There's a, there's just, there's a great text page between Deadpool and Lady Deathstrike. That is wonderful. This gets our, this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award for, ooh, do I give it to Sailor Deadpool? Which is such a. Don't get me started. I lost it. Yeah, it's really fun. But I probably give it to Princess, uh, Deadpool's symbiote daughter, dog, wolf creature thing who's got sparkle VFX around her. She's eating bones. She's being adorable. It's super fun. This book remains super fun, over the top, funny, gory, like a perfect rom-com. Cannot recommend it higher. All right, next up is Doctor Strange issue number three. Again, this could have been a pick of the week Mm -hmm, for me because mm -hmm. the way that Judd McKay weaves this story is just fantastic. And it is a Doctor Strange versus Dormammu issue. And it feels like we've been waiting for something this big. And the way that Judd delivers it is just so uncanny. It's just like, he's just like, oh, watch me do this. And like, just writes an elegant story here where it's parlay day and Dormammu gets to walk on Earth. Uh, for 24 hours by using one of his human followers who have been praising him and supporting him and the way that Doctor Strange defeats Dormammu. Because like Dormammu's not like, I'm going to like destroy everything. He's just like, I'm going to just like enjoy this and just really just throw salt on the wound because Doctor Strange can't really do anything. Like It's not like he's doing anything evil. Like This person gave himself up to Dormammu uh, willingly. And the way that Doctor Strange like deals with this issue is spectacular. This is Jed McKay just like delivering an MVP of an issue. Like this single issue of Doctor Strange is easily going in my collection. Like I need it. Um, yeah. And for that, I'm going to give it my. This is like being attacked by Angry Preschool Award. Mm-hmm. On to Silver Surfer Ghostlight number four. Um, we get some really interesting stuff in here with the stranger, you're really exploring the madness, the goodness, all that stuff. I will give my, this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award to the way John Jennings writes silver surfer. He's got that cool, weird, different vibe from most folks. And like, 
you get a real interesting moment when he connects to the humanity of it all around him and he talks to uh, Al Harper's mom about Al. It's a really sweet moment, but also Silver Surfer's like, these emotions, I don't understand them. Uh, It's great. We've got Spider-Man 2099 Dark Genesis number five out this week. The big wrap up to this weekly series. There's like a very brief kind of deeply hidden reference to Death's Head, which made me super duper happy. This is a big fiery finale. I will give my this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award to Zombie Blade. Blade 2099 is a zombie in this one that has to eat versions of flesh or just actual flesh and i really like that character i like what he's going through i like his vibe i like his moments in here he's different from uh, our main blade but he's pretty neat so i like him all right i'm gonna take us to a galaxy far far away with the next two books but we first up we have star wars dr afra issue number 32 and it is a dr afra and luke skywalker team up book if you're asking how and why you get the answers right away as soon as you open this book and learn um but there's a lot going on here. Like as a Star Wars fan, as a Dr. Afro fan, as someone who grew up with the prequels, there is essentially a, a, a tomb that needs to be robbed. And it is discovered by Afra through a message that was given to her. It's a Jedi hollow that is like, contains someone that we thought was dead. Um, and we don't know when this was recorded, but they are essentially giving instructions on how to get to this place that is a temple of sorts a jedi temple of sorts uh but the name that is that is mentioned in this was a huge shock to me because she is one of my favorite jedis from uh the prequels and from the clone wars and i gasped when i saw it and then to get the reveal at the end of this issue left me with so many questions i've never wanted to read the next issue more in my life like i i you have no idea how pumped I am that this character could maybe be alive still after Order 66, but like mm-hmm. so many questions. I have so many questions and I'm excited to see where this story goes next. Um, but I'm going to give Alyssa Wong my, this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award because they're pulling in some like deep references, but also like tying together a lot of like history here. And I'm very excited. Alyssa Wong has me very pumped for this book. Hell yeah. Especially after after coming off of that amazing issue that we just got last month of Afra. So, Alyssa Wong, I love you so much. Keep it going. Uh, but next up, we have Star Wars Stanistaros, issue number four. And the last three issues, I mean, we've praised this book since the beginning, and we've enjoyed it. And the characters that have been introduced have been amazing. But at its core, this book is about family. And, like, there's nothing more fascinating to me in this world than family being divided by the two different organizations, the the Imperials and the Rebels. And in this issue, it comes like full circle. We get some action here. We get a lot of very nasty choices, a lot of, you know, confrontations that are very hard to like look at and read. But I mean, it's true what they say, like family, nobody can hurt you like more than your own family. And in this issue, we get a lot of that. So again, I'm going to give my, this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award to this entire team because they, this issue like is tense and the stories that they've been telling here are just phenomenal. Hell yeah. All right. Two more books this week. First, we've got Venom Lethal Protector 2, number three. There is a... Paolo Sakara cover, and I think it's the the main cover, which homages old school Jim Steranko shield stuff. God dang it. It's so good. Oh, Paolo does. Uh, he actually has another variant cover, too, but his his cover work has been so, so excellent with all the Venom stuff. Big shouts to him. Um, also, they uh, David Michelinie has somebody call someone else a Batinsky which is such a great old insult from and said from an old character. I cracked up. I got to use that more. Uh, That said, I will give my this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award to nuns with guns, nuns with machine guns in this issue. It is this is a very silly, wonderful book with down shield helicarriers and silver sable and Dr. Doom and Venom all over the place. I am into it. And then finally, we've got X-23 Deadly Regenesis number three. Um, Poor Laura goes through some real 
rough stuff in this issue. I will give my this is like being attacked by an angry preschool award to a moment where we see Logan hugging Laura and telling her it's okay. I need more of that. I love every time that they're like together. I love all the Logan family stuff. So give me more. All right, that is it for our uh, floppies this week. But we have a couple more books coming out to uh, Marvel Unlimited, including our Infinity Comics. Yeah, all right. Tons of issues out this week. It's really um, mostly we're, we're just plugging on issues of X-Men Unlimited, Spider-Verse Unlimited, Marvel's Voices, Iron Fist and Pay, and a Love Unlimited, and Cosmo the Space Dog. But we also have the finale of the arc between Avengers and Guardians in Avengers Unlimited number 48. So plenty to read on MU this week. Yeah, we also got a couple of special early releases hitting the app. We have Groot issue number one, uh, Hollow's Eve issue number one, and the excellent issue number one. But there's a couple of other number ones I want to quickly highlight. We have Immoral X-Men issue number one, which is... Beginning of Sins of Sinister, we also get the first issue of Betsy Brada, Captain Britain. So if you want to get caught up, that's now is the time to do it. Um, there's only a couple of issues out right now. And then Punisher War Journal base number one, which is a Torah and Grunbeck special. Also, when you're on Marvel Unlimited, what else you got to check out? Yes, you should go check out Ultimate Spider-Man issue number 13, which we are going to be covering on our reading club this week with Stephen Byrne. But Highly recommend you, should, you that you check out the whole series if you can, uh, because it is a delight. Yeah, it's only uh, 100 plus issues. Yeah, not a big deal. Get cracking. Jasmine, we are about to talk about one of, I don't know, maybe one of our favorite, one of the best Marvel single issues of all time? Easily. We're talking about a single issue of Ultimate Spider-Man, but did I read all 12 issues before reading this issue just so I can go down a trip down memory lane? Yes. Yes, I did. Yes. And we are talking about Ultimate Spider-Man 13, which we are reading with Stephen Byrne. Hello, Stephen. Hello. 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 Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. This was an amazing pick. So I'm really excited to talk about this. Can you tell us a little bit about why you picked it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh... Well, if you asked me, you know, to pick any Marvel comic ever, and, you know, I just sort of (laughs) pondered a little bit about, you know, what sort of had a had an influence on me, what had a had a big impact on me and, you know, went into the the kind of the way, way back. This was one of the earliest comics I ever read. I was like, like the perfect age for it. I was like around 12, 13, 14, like exactly in that sweet spot when you're supposed to be reading Ultimate Spider-Man. And uh, it, it kind of blew my mind, just the, the series as a whole, because up until that point, I only knew like kind of comic books like the Beano. Do you have the Beano in the US? I know Beano, yeah. Beano? It's like, it's like um, Dennis the Menace. It's like kind of like newspaper cartoons, like little funny, short, cute, cartoony kind of things, a collection of those. So that was my kind of entire experience with comic books up until that point. And I don't I don't think I even really I mean, I guess I obviously knew Marvel comics were a thing, but I didn't know how you got them or where they were or, or just how to get into that world. And then somewhere along the way, I got old enough to discover them myself. And Ultimate Spider-Man was one of the first ever uh, comic series I got into. And it just kind of it was it was fascinating to see something that was kind of like more adult, at least from the perspective of a 12 or 13 year old. And then this issue in particular, issue 13, was like nothing I had ever seen because the whole issue is just a conversation between two people in a in a room. And I was thinking even, even today in like mainstream superhero comics, it's not something that you see that often, like an entire issue that's just dedicated to an emotional conversation. And I, I think it like expanded my mind at that time of like what comic storytelling could be, even in ways that I didn't entirely understand at the time, but I just knew that I was reading something special. And I know I read it like dozens of times. And then going back and reading it this week, because uh, I was knowing I was going to talk about it, I was like, oh, it's really fascinating because it like it still holds up like just so well. So like one thing that struck me about it was the use of silent panels. There's so much silent panels and so much great uh, visual acting from Mark Bagley. And it kind of 
what I saw was things that I have kind of informed my own art style that were kind of like planted in me at that young age that I, I kind of had not even realized. But then going back and looking at it, I'm like, this is the stuff I love. I love when you can kind of like zero in. Like I love stories about large than life characters and superheroes and whiz bang and punching and all that kind of stuff. But then my favorite part is when you pare that all down and go, what is that person's life like when they're just kind of like sitting at home and, and, and talking with a friend It's when you get to that kind of like granular human level and you get kind of like, just what is the impact of being this larger than life character in, in the smaller moments? And I think this issue is something that just perfectly captured that for me. And, and, I could credit it with like entirely hooking me on comics because for the next 10 or 15 years or however long Ultimate Spider-Man ran, it was like the anchor in my comic collecting mm-hmm. life. It was like the other books came and went and, you know, lasted or were canceled or whatever. But this one was just this solid point with like the same writer and, and a, a handful of artists all the way through. And it was just sort of this... Uh, key formative part of my comic book education. I think I I, I want to go back because you mentioned that you were reading this probably around like 12 mm-hmm. or 13. And like, I think we're, it sounds like we're probably around the same age because I, I distinctly remember picking up these issues at my local library. Like I used to in middle school would uh, have to wait for my mom to pick me up after work. And so like for about two hours, I had to hang out at the local library, which was like down the street from my middle school. And I, I distinctly remember just like, there was only a few comics that my library had and like ultimate Spider-Man was probably one of the most consistent. Like I never got every single issue of any series. It would always be like a couple issues here and there. Um, but like the thing that always blew my mind was uh, just how different the covers looked for ultimate Spider-Man compared to every single thing else that mm. was on the shelf next to it. And it very much was an anchor point for me. Like you said, where it's like, this was a comic that like whenever a new issue came out, I was excited to read it. Uh, whenever I could get my hands on it. Um, it was enough to like make me go to the comic book store to try to find more. It was consistent in terms of art and like uh, writer, like you said, like we had Mark Bagley and Brian Michael Bendis the entire way through. And like, it just was good. It was quality. Like everything else just came second to this book for me. And like rereading it now is something special. It's like so many things clicked for me too. Like, I noticed, like, okay, now I know why this character resonated with me. And, like, there's so much metaphor for, like, you know, adolescence. Even the way it opens where he's trying to find the words to tell Mary Jane is, as someone who's, like, a, a queer trans woman, like, I like I had chills reading it again. Because I'm, like, I, th- like, this could have been, like, a recording of, like, what it was for me to, like, come up to certain people. And it was, like... <laughs> This hit home. Like, I was like, I, I, it like, I teared up at certain parts of this rereading this. And like, I, that was a different experience that I had when I first read it. Yeah, that, that's lovely. Uh, and, and I had a similar, yeah, similar kind of experience rereading it as well. I, you know, I don't think I was entirely in touch with my sexuality at that time or age when I was reading it. But I feel like I probably was still connecting to it on some kind of unconscious level of this idea of this uh, character carrying a secret, being like petrified of telling the person closest to them, telling the person closest to them, having them react so positively and and it being almost kind of like a a fantasy of how you would want that sort of conversation to, to happen. And and I, I, yeah, I couldn't help but thinking when I was rereading it, it's like, I wonder if like my little not fully formed gay brain was kind of like <laughs> connecting to that in some way uh, that, that when I read it now, I'm like, I actually, so I was actually reading it and I was like, I actually did have this scene kind of almost exactly years later, even down to the bit where uh, Aunt May comes into the room because mm-hmm. I had this uh, <laughs> girl girlfriend, friend who was a girl, uh, and we were in my house and we were up in my bedroom and I was telling her I was gay and this was like, I don't know, maybe I was like 15, 16 or, or something like that. So it was a few years later. But my dad came into the room uh, and the what he thought was that we were like canoodling or <laughs> or whatever and, and I was yeah and I was like 
you know, I, you know, I wasn't edged by parents and I wasn't like, I had literally just told her I was gay. And then my dad comes in and his whole read of the situation is, oh, these, this guy and this girl are in the bedroom together. They shouldn't be. And, you know, I sort of was almost laughing because I couldn't explain to him exactly, you know, what was going on, but how his, his interpretation of events could not have been further from the truth. <laughs> um. I want to I want to step back and think about the the place this has in in Marvel timeline because uh, this issue came out September fifth two thousand one so thinking about where the two of you were and how old you were but also where we were as a company you know not far removed from uh, Joe Casada coming in and so it's this is the Ultimate Universe is sort of a re envisioning of Marvel stories and characters for the you know the twenty first century as it were. And so we didn't give all the full credits. We've talked about some names. We've talked about Brian Michael Bendis as the writer, penciled by Mark Bagley, inks by Art the Bear, lettered by Albert D. Shenz, and colored by Zhang Choi. Um, and uh, Jasmine, you mentioned the cover treatment, which is really important because it sort of issues everything we know about how comics are shelved and sold and marketed, where you have to have, like, there's certain ways that they're done and, and, and they're made for, uh, for spinner racks or for shelving and different things. And so you got the red bars on the side, but it's also the coloring of the way those images are colored. It's a digital coloring. Don't get me started way that just, it looked completely different from everything else on the racks. It did. And I only say that because like, like, don't get me started only because like, I, I distinctly remember being like this coloring on this front page is like, insane like what is this like i thought i was gonna get like a computer like a fully computer like digitized issue of like spider-man and i would open it up and i'm like these colors are flat what's going on (laughs) and like it took me a long time to like realize that they were still done by the same artist but like it just showed it it was one of the first moments where i realized how much coloring like can do to art and like how much of a like impact it has and like that's when i started like really like paying attention to who was coloring what because it, it it makes that big of a difference and like at the end of the day it was still a great story like i wasn't mad at it like i i just was like thrown off and like again it would take a while but you learn those types of things through these these weird like setups those ultimate comics felt special because they they had the like the slightly thicker cardstock for the mm-hmm. for the covers at least in the beginning and yeah, there was just something about them that felt like this is the special comic. This is the best comic. <laughs> it's kind of at least how how I thought of it. It was like this was the the creme de la creme. One of the things, uh, Stephen, that you mentioned was that you like you were talking about like what comics we had here in the U.S. Where where were you reading these? Where were you like in your comic book journey? Yeah, my dad used to drive me to. There used to be a shop in Dublin. I'm from Ireland. I don't know if I mentioned that. Uh, uh, my dad used to drive me to a shop called Wow Comics, and I think he, you know he'd take me once a month, maybe, and I would phone up like every week to find out what was there and if they could keep it for me because I I couldn't get there myself, so I wanted to make sure that I had they had whatever I wanted. I didn't miss anything, and so yeah, that that was kind of like yeah the early phases. You're actually I'm sort of remembering it as I'm saying it now. And uh, and yeah, and then I remember Forbidden Planet in in Dublin as well. When I got a bit older and was able to go into town by myself, that was kind of like the 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 key component of the town visit was going to Forbidden Planet, and everything else sort of functioned around that. So uh, the Ultimate Comic Line absolutely like served its uh, intended purpose of capturing someone new to comics who was maybe overwhelmed, intimidated by everything that was going on, didn't know where to start and had this like sort of reset button for lots of the sort of recognizable characters and yeah, absolutely got its hooks in me. And then from there over the years, you know, expanded out into, into other stuff. It's, it just makes sense why it like resonated with so many people at the time. Cause it was like a way in and it was, so fresh and so new and like so just like it felt more updated more modernized more like you know relatable it to someone who was you know a teen in those early years um but it's it's just crazy like how like looking back like you would never have imagined like one that this book would make it to like i think almost 200 issues 
if not yeah, more. Yeah, I could press something like that. It was um, insane, yeah. All told between the, the various volumes, yeah. It's, over, it's about yeah. 200. It's crazy. Like There's just something uh, sort of essential and timeless about... Like the like the fact that he you know in the specific issue we're talking about that Peter Parker tells uh, Mary Jane his identity that is what a teenage kid would do <laughs> if you had superpowers <laughs> you would definitely do that even the the personification of this fifteen year old Peter you know if you think if you go back and read the original Lee and Ditko Spideys I mean he's he's a little bit angrier he's a little bit more withdrawn he's 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 a, a little bit different. He finds his, the creators find their footing for Peter and, and he finds his place in the world as time goes on. But here you get a sense of he's a little bit more playful and yes, he's shy and he's weird and he's awkward and he's geeky and all this stuff. But at the same time, he is that he's warmer. The di- like the dialogue in Ultimate Spider-Man is so grounded. It feels so real. So you, you can't help but just kind of connect to it more as, as, as like a, just a story that kind of feel, feels more natural, feels more grounded is the best word I can go for it. Yeah. The other thing I, I wanted to add, kind of what you both are saying too, about it being grounded and just feeling real, uh, is like, I feel like a lot more recently, Spider-Man stories have gotten like, there's there's always that like, you know, John Hughes-esque like relationship that, you know, this character has because he is in high school. And like, there is no other series outside of this one that feels more like John Hughes. Like, it it feels like that. There's a, an electricity to the drama. There's an electricity to the dialogue. Every line matters. Like, every, like, scene matters. Like, and like you mentioned, like, Stephen, like, when we're in that bedroom and all it is is just, like, dialogue, like, there really isn't an action sequence outside of Peter jumping on a wall to prove that he can climb on the wall. Um, it's, like... It, that's the thing that carries it like the dialogue and like the expressions and the acting that that uh we see Bagley do here and it's 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 I don't know it's just it's very like enlightening to see this and like going back to what you were saying too about it like having so much influence on Spider-Man today yeah Mark Bagley's facial expressions in in that issue are so incredible and uh, like when I was rereading it some of them like some of them were like almost burned into my memory like a sense memory thing you know like when you smell something from your childhood and you're kind of transported back there Mm -hmm. were certain panels of like mary jane's facial reactions to peter parker that that when i saw them i was just sort of like transported back to that like first time reading it because they 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 were so much subtlety in, in in what he was doing and you know it's something that i you know attempt to capture in my own work is like realistic uh facial acting but even though the even though the 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 character designs that he's doing are quite cartoony and they've got like big eyes and you know it's it's not like ultra realistic but the the emotion that he's conveying feels ultra realistic and I, i yeah i think it's really really impressive and really like brings the script to life yeah i think the way he draws the kids is great because they feel like kids they're they're 15 years old you are a child i don't care what anybody says you may be 15 and you're a teenager you are still a child and yeah, the way that, that they 15, they move yeah. there's a lightness to it there's you know like they feel appropriate in the way that they're drawn they don't just look like smaller adults which you know is something that could happen but it Thankfully, it does not here. Uh, going into the topic of of the writing, I think part of it, uh, you know, you mentioned John Hughes, Jazz. It's part of it is Brian is pulling so many of his influences and his years, and it's the it's the great thing about having legacy characters and, and years of history. So we have these thoughts about these characters, but the new generations of creators come in to tell their stories mm-hmm. and their versions, and they bring all the things that that are important to them. So yeah, I'm sure Brian is bringing that, that like those aspects of things, but he's also bringing like David Mamet and, and Aaron Sorkin and, and all of the, like the storytelling things on top of his grandiose, amazing superhero brain. He's taking all of that. And that's why you get something so amazing here. And it's a fascinating, as we've talked about one room, two, sometimes three people just talking, and it is one of the most captivating issues we've ever published. Easily. Um, there's not a whole ton more to talk about. You guys, We've talked about the story. We've, uh, we've, we've 
said that this is fantastic. So if anybody listening has not read Ultimate Spider-Man 13 at this point, please do. Jasmine, in your reread, um, I'm curious because it it is very sort of it's a it, it marked a storytelling shift where mm-hmm. you, Brian and, and Mark the team were getting a lot more room to tell their story, you know, like what probably would have been two issues of amazing Spider-Man long time ago are spread across six, eight, whatever number of issues of ultimate Spider-Man. They really allowed their characters to breathe and tell stories and, and it sort of open up a lot. Was that, it must've been fun to reread it now. It was fun to reread it now, especially because I mean, Ryan, you and I reread every single book that comes out today. And like, it's, The thing that I found fascinating was you could tell. You could kind of see like these creatives really trying something new and like really going for it. I I think that's the most impressive thing about this book is like they were taking risks and they might not have paid off at certain points, but like a lot of it did. And that's it's, it's just really cool to see the evolution of comic book writing and storytelling in general. I mean, to put it in perspective, like, Brian, you were talking about, like, what what would be, like, two issues of Spider-Man is now, like, stretched out into, like, six issues. Like, you don't see Spider-Man actually in full action until about issues four or five. Yeah, I remember that. In this series, which is, like, wild to me. Like, I like he doesn't get his costume until issue three, I believe. And that was the thing that really blew me away in the reread, where it's, like, I can't think of a single number one issue where we don't get the comp like the, the costume reveal right away or like we don't get some type of big action set piece and it was it's just like it's really fascinating it, it makes for a great and enjoyable like trade reading like today but like at that time like i don't know how i would have reacted to something like this like especially if i was reading it from like issue one day one that is how i read it though i read the because my very first issue was issue eight which was the first issue of the second arc. So then I, I read the first story as a trade. So I, I definitely, uh, it, it worked really well on me, that pace of storytelling. And I, did, I didn't reread uh, as much as you. I just read the, the issue, issue 13, but it did make me sort of go, oh, like it sort of started to bring back the memories of like, oh, I sort of remember what just happened before this. And I kind of remember what happened after. And it yeah, made me be like, okay, I definitely want to go back and read all this now. And uh, hopefully... Those two crazy kids, Peter and MJ, can work it out. <laughs> just for for anybody who's just jumping in and reading issue number thirteen, just know that uh, the Green Goblin has attacked the school uh, and pretty much threatened to murder Peter. And then Kingpin murdered someone in, with his hands uh, by crushing someone's head in a, in a Spider-Man mask right before this issue. And then it's just like, oh, by the way, MJ, I'm Spider-Man. <laughs> It is a good little taster, though, like an issue to sort of make you see the the potential and all the exciting places that the book is going to go. So even like you could start with 13 and then go back to one, but just to sort of I agree. get you excited, like 13 is a great one. Um, Stephen, before we let you go, we've uh, we've got to pump up your Marvel's Voices pride story. Tell us a little bit about what you got going on. Yeah, cool. Uh, it's a, a story about... Uh, iconic queer character jumbo carnation putting on a fashion show so uh really dark depressing miserable story uh you know really getting into the 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 depths of the characters now it's a it's a very fun uh little light uh kind of fluffy thing that hopefully people will enjoy and hopefully it also has a little bit of it's got some humor and it also has a little bit of heart in it and uh and the greatest marvel character of all time mr cluck i don't know have you read it <laughs> have you read it yes TV i have it now i'm, no, I'm okay. very intrigued okay mr cluck is in it so <laughs> something Amazing. something to look forward to <laughs> um and for people who like i mean like pride issue doesn't come out for a couple more weeks Mm-hmm. Um, but like for people who want to get to know more of, of your work, you have an infinite comic currently on Marvel Unlimited. What can you tell us about that? Uh, it's a devil dinosaur. It's like a, a silent, uh, comic again, sort of just like fun little uh, silent comics, actually speaking of everything we were talking about with, uh, ultimate Spider-Man and those silent panels, you know, I love the idea of telling a story with no words. It sort of challenges you to come up with some interesting things. And yeah, I did, I did a, like. A little, this little kind of like cutesy Marvel animations that I, I posted online on, on my Instagram that were kind of just like silent visual gags, sort of like parodies of the of the MCU movies. And 
uh, I think uh, they saw that and thought that I had a way with sort of that sort of storytelling. So it's a, it's a fun little adventure of devil dinosaur and what kind of, kind of what he gets up to when moon girl is away is, is, was part of the, the idea behind it. A little bit more of a focus on him than, than moon girl, even though she is in it. I love this. Um, (laughs) It feeds right into my pet Avengers agenda. So thank you for that. Um, I know we're getting some of that, a little bit later, but I am I just I need more devil dinosaur in my life. And I hope that the folks at Marvel Snap check out your Instagram and, and hire you to do some uh oh. some card art. Tell them. Yes, uh, please the, tell them. Yeah, I love that game. Your I played little it. chubby Modoc makes me so happy. Oh, thank you so much. I've played Marvel Snap basically every single day since it came out. And I'm not a like I'm not a mobile gamer. I don't even have any other games on my phone but just absolutely has yeah taken over my existence. So I would love to do something for it. This was awesome. Um, very excited to check your work out in Marvel's Voices Pride issue number one this year. Um, and I'm excited to see what else is down the line for you. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, I am excited. You know, writing is something that I've wanted to do more and more of and have kind of... Uh, been more actively I've always had an interest in it always been like tinkering away by myself but been more actively pursuing it in the last year or so so yeah hopefully I'll get more opportunities to do stuff like that uh we already mentioned your Instagram but where else can people find you Instagram's probably the best place yeah Instagram artwork of Stephen Byrne I I do have a Twitter but I have kind of all but abandoned Twitter I, I, I still use it occasionally for like promotional purposes but yeah don't stay logged in for the sake of my mental health. So, All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun, Stephen. I thank you. can't thank you enough for joining the show and bringing us this issue. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Big thanks once again to Stephen Byrne for coming on the show and just you know, letting us talk about Ultimate Spider-Man with one of his collaborators. Uh, you know, it's written by Brian Michael Bendis and Stephen hesitated to talk about the work that he's been doing with Bendis, but you you can go find it. You can go check it out. Yeah. Good stuff going on over there. Time for us to wrap it up. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos and Jasmine Estrada. Brad Barton is Pull's Senior Manager of Audio Production and Development. Jill DeBoff is our Director of Audio. Make sure to email us over at pullist at marvel.com. You can also reach us on Twitter and Instagram using the hashtags MarvelPullist and OkToReadPullist. Um, make sure to rate and subscribe and, you know, give us those five stars. Tell a friend. Yeah. For more information and full quote of the week contest rules, go to marvel.com slash full list quote rules. Terms and conditions apply. Open to U.S. residents 18 and up. Marvel Insider is open to U.S. residents 18 plus only. Terms apply. Visit marvel.com slash insider to join or sign in to answer the Marvel's pull list quote of the week activity. That's it. We did it. Woo. I'm Ryan. Woo. And I'm Jasmine. This is Marvel, your universe. <laughs>